0: We have to recognize that within the United States, we've given rise to things that if they don't qualify under the specific definition of fascism, that's hardly any consolation. You know what I mean? They come Mm -hmm. awfully, awfully close.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The David Packman Show, Democracy Now!, Humorless Queers, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, and On the Media. But we start with some words of wisdom from Douglas Adams.
2: The major problem... One of the major problems, for there are several, one of the major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it, or rather, of who manages to get people to let them do it to them. To summarise, it is a well-known fact that those people who most want to rule people are ipso facto those least suited to do it. To summarise the summary, anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. To summarise the summary of the summary... People are a problem.
3: Trump isn't Hitler. He isn't a fascist either, says Newsweek's Matthew Cooper. The unspectacular truth, he assures, is that, quote, a Trump presidency would probably be marked by the quotidian work of so many other presidents, trying to sell Congress and the public on proposals while fighting off not only a culture of protest, but also the usual swarm of lobbyists who kill any interesting idea with ads and donations, close quote. Cooper says readers need only remember Schoolhouse Rock to be assured that, quote, Trump is no match for the American political system with its three branches of government, close quote. More than likely, Cooper concludes, a Trump presidency would be, quote, distinguished more by his hue, his bullying and his encouragement of other bullies than by any lasting damage done to a republic that has endured far worse, close quote feel better now? Well, Cooper's blithe disinterest in any actual victims of Trump's bullying and encouragement of other bullies is concerning, to say the least. But his basic argument that people who worry about a Trump presidency just don't understand how Washington works is also off point. He suggests that thoughts of torture, for instance, or internment camps, quote, would be worrisome if America were Bolivia and not an enduring democracy. Close quote. But isn't Guantanamo Bay an internment camp set up by armed forces obeying their commander-in-chief? Doesn't Barack Obama meet weekly with advisers to assemble a kill list of people, including U.S. citizens, that the Justice Department has said can be killed without trial? It really isn't too much to say that a President Trump would start with many tools useful in establishing an authoritarian regime and that any such impulse would only be helped by elite media eager to wave it away as so much sound and fury. ¶¶
4: been trying to suss out how to understand who is likely to find Donald Trump appealing as a Republican primary candidate. Is it based on income? Is it based on religion? Is it based on education? Not really. Is it based on race? Well, the Republican Party is really, really white already, so I don't think it's a surprise that Donald Trump has significant support from white people. Matthew McWilliams writes in Politico that he found one single statistically significant variable that predicts whether a voter supports Donald Trump and that variable is authoritarianism Americans with authoritarian inclinations are propping up Donald Trump support and the way Matthew McWilliams did this is he conducted a poll in December under the auspices of my undergraduate alma mater the University of Massachusetts in Amherst sampled 1800 registered voters he ran a statistical analysis and he found that education income gender age political ideology religiosity had no significant impact on a republican voters preferred candidate and that just two variables were statistically significant authoritarianism and fear of terrorism with authoritarianism being far more significant than fear of terrorism and the political behavior of authoritarians has been widely studied and when we look at it it's very obvious what's going on here we know that authoritarians obey they rally to and follow so-called strong leaders and they respond aggressively to outsiders particularly when they feel threatened exactly the type of emotions that donald trump's campaign rhetoric has been stirring up and remember not all authoritarians are republicans but political scientist mark hetherington has found that authoritarians have moved significantly to the republican party and away from the democratic party over the last fourteen years and i think louis this is it's always interesting when we see something that we sort of intuitively understand put into a scientific or statistical analysis and we see it here and it is not at all surprising
2: and this is funny because now i'm thinking about all of those times that republicans kind of pick these heroes these idols and you know uh, ronald reagan immediately comes to mind right ronald reagan was this great powerful leader and there's almost like this this cult like following right and anyone who is against ronald reagan
4: is uh vilified i suppose and the risk is that if trump could win the primary he might well appeal to the thirty nine percent of independents who are strong authoritarians he might appeal to the seventeen percent of democrats who were strong authoritarians it is important that he not be the nominee and this gets to the issue of let's run against Trump. I understand the appeal of that, but we've talked generally about how you can't always rely on people not voting for the crazy guy. That's number one. And number two, because he is appealing so strongly to authoritarians, there is some risk that with 39% of independents and 17% of Democrats, I'm just saying it's not a guarantee that if Trump is the nominee, he loses in November.
5: I was cursing the traffic. When I started to laugh at a sticker on the car in front of me, there on the bumper, in big bold letters, it said, Question Authority. Question Authority. Question Authority. I thought about it once, and I thought about it twice, and it seemed like good advice to me.
6: Jeremy Scahill, I wanted to ask about Donald Trump. Um, He originally said on MSNBC, when asked about whose foreign policy advisors were, I'm speaking with myself, number one, he said, because I have a very good brain. Um, But then, with The Washington Post, um, he talked about his uh, top foreign policy advisors and named Joseph Schmitz as one of them. Talk about who Joseph Schmitz is.
7: Yeah, Joseph Schmitz um, was the Pentagon inspector. General under Donald Rumsfeld, and he didn't really uh, inspect much of anything. Um, he was a big cheerleader, actually, for uh, many of the most kind of excessive uh, policies of, uh, of of Rumsfeld and and, and the Pentagon uh, in the post nine eleven world. And um, and when Schmitz um, uh, left uh, the, the DOD, he became an executive at uh, at Blackwater. And uh, Joseph Schmitz is a You know, is a radical Christian supremacist. He's a member of the Sovereign uh, Order of the Knights of Malta, um, and and really is sort of a you know has a neo Crusader worldview. And I'm 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 choosing those world words carefully. I mean, that's that that he is definitely a a radical Christian um, supremacist, and he uh, was an enthusiastic uh, you know fan of Eric Prince and Blackwater, and he goes and he he joins that uh, that company. And, um, you know, this is a guy, though, who, uh, when I was researching him for the, the Blackwater book, um, he wrote a series of, of letters to the editor of, of uh, conservative newspapers, Washington Times and others in the 90s. Um, he was a fanatical opponent of, of abortion. And in one of the letters he—I he, actually want to quote this correctly, because Joseph Schmidt threatened to sue me once, um, and, of course, he, he couldn't because everything I said it was true—but um, he, he, he said, as a former fetus— the plight of aborted, innocent human life is as real to me as rape is to most women. Uh, this is Donald Trump's, you know, top foreign policy advisor right now. Um, and, you know, I mean, jo- Joseph Schmitz is uh, in many ways in Washington a total clown and a, and a joke um, because of his insane worldview uh, that has no bearing in the in the modern world. Um, and yet he continues to get government contracts. He was he was a co- he was getting paid. Uh, by the Inspector General on Afghanistan uh, under the Obama administration. And, you know, so he's, he's, he's part of, I wouldn't even put him in the category of, of neoconservatives. I mean, it's really more the, the neo crusader crowd that, that Joseph Schmitz is a part of.
3: White supremacy in its various strains is among the most significant, least discussed phenomena in U.S. media discourse. A news report may note that a pundit stated that black people are lazier and more violent than other people and urged public policies premised on that idea. Or that a candidate's followers singled out African Americans or Latinos to harass or assault and that these things are concerning. What we don't often hear is that these ideas and actions are associated with a particular worldview that has a history that we can talk about. So while ample evidence of white supremacist thinking and behavior exists, anyone using the term still somehow sounds outlandish or doctrinaire. We don't have white supremacists. We just have some angry people with a few bad ideas. Well, for decades, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been documenting the reality that some seem to think we can ignore into non-existence. They monitor the activities of domestic hate groups and other extremists, including the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazi movement, and others. Heidi Byrick is director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. She joins us now by phone from Montgomery, Alabama. Welcome to Counterspin, Heidi Byrick. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the landscape that your work maps. Hearing reports of things like white high school basketball fans chanting Trump, Trump at their largely Latino opponents is giving some people the idea that white supremacy is either increasing or more visible. But I believe I've heard it said that there's actually been a decrease in organized hate groups per se, Is that so? And if so, what's taking their place? Because it sure feels like hate is in the air.
8: Sure. Well, there's a couple things going on at once. One, the number of hate groups in the United States today is definitely higher than it was, for example, in 2000. Mm -hmm. We have more like almost a thousand groups today, back then about 600. So organized white supremacy is growing. But then there's the um, activity on the Internet of extremists which has become particularly visible in this campaign season where people who are emboldened in particular by the Trump um, candidacy have started making racist statements, and engaging in racist activities in a much more forward way than prior to when this campaign really started heating up. So you have these two things going on, more internet activity with racists, more hate groups, and more visible hate group activity.
3: Well, we want media to take white supremacy seriously. I don't think it's smart or good journalism to dismiss people as humorous or negligible or just a series of individual cranks, you know. But at the same time, we're wary of seeing certain ideas countenanced, seeing them entertained as though they were just what some people think, like preferring apples to oranges. There has to be a way to thread that needle and for media to talk seriously about these ideas and their, and their impact on society? What, what do you make about the amount and the quality of coverage that these issues um, get?
8: Well, I mean, oftentimes when I talk to journalists, they have this inclination to not want to write about hate groups, hate ideology, either because they think it's going to draw attention to these groups that's undeserved, make them seem perhaps larger than they are, have more impact, You know, in general, I reject those, that way of thinking. I think that we actually have to talk about these organizations and these beliefs seriously and whenever they come up. And the reason is this. The United States has a horrific history of white supremacy, white violence, domestic terrorism predicated on these beliefs. I mean, people seem to forget that it's only in the mid-60s that black folks in the United States were accorded the same rights as white people. And so if you aren't talking about white supremacy, you're sort of ignoring one of the main facets of American society. And I have to say that, um, you know, over the last few weeks with the Trump Klan controversy, these various incidents at Trump rallies, I mean, you realize that this is still a potent driving factor in uh, United States politics and society. It needs to be talked about and talked about often.
3: Well, when Fair was doing work about a kind of hate radio host named Bob Grant here in New York who referred repeatedly to African-Americans as subhuman, as savages, part of the problem was that we couldn't get media to use actual quotes from him. You know, uh, they would just describe him as a curmudgeon, you know, or as cranky. And it was almost as though including his actual quotes was too inflammatory. I mean it, it seems as though and you're getting at this, we don't want to identify these ideas because somehow that seems to be giving them giving them oxygen, you know, as though if we ignored them they would go away.
8: Yeah, well look, they don't go away. I mean we we are seeing controversies today that people probably thought were put to bed at you know when the Dixiecrats disappeared from the scene and segregation. So they don't go away. They have to be addressed, they have to be explained, they have to be condemned. The media shouldn't think that talking about these issues is giving them oxygen it 's not it's confronting uh the horrors of this thinking and t- and making clear that people understand what this is about that America has this kind of a history, and that these ideas have to be effectively channeled and explained for what they are
3: right right well we don 't want to police speech, of course, and I wonder how you think we might go about balancing. Our civil liberties concerns with at the same time a recognition that, for example, there is, can be a website that's saying, you know, if you as a white person take your survival and your heritage seriously, well, there's certain people who it would be better if they didn't exist. You know, we want to see those connections between ideas and actions made, but at the same time, we want to, to champion the free flow of information. How do you, how do you work that, walk that line?
8: Sure. And this is this is an issue that comes up a lot in our work. Look, um, you know, we are not about violating anybody's First Amendment rights. Our role, you know, at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I think really for all good citizens, is to counter hate speech with speech. In other words, use our First Amendment rights. Just as, you know, a hate group might be exercising it by putting out an idea of white genocide or something like that. But to use our First Amendment rights to point out what's wrong about that thinking, where that kind of thinking can lead, and once again, you know, point out what the history of racial violence has been like in this country. That's what needs to happen. So, you know, I encourage people to speak out about these ideas, to counter these ideas. You know, that that is very, very important to reducing their power. I don't
9: know. I don't know. I don't know know how we survive.
5: Just like me. Are we the only one committing right, right, crime? Right, are are we the of... only ones <laughs> yeah. doing the time?
10: We are very happy to welcome to the show Kathleen Friedel. Kathleen is a political historian and author of the G.I. Bill and the Drug Wars in America, 1940 to 1973. Her latest piece in the Washington Monthly entitled Taking Liberties with Religious Liberty is part of a larger project on the role of Catholic hospitals in American life. She occasionally shares her thoughts on election season and other politics on her Huffington Post blog, and we wanted to have her on the show today because of that very blog where she wrote a piece called Sorry, Folks, it's fascism. So Kathleen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So before we dive in, I know we have a lot of questions for you, but I was hoping we could start with like kind of a grounding question. And if you could give us a sense of like, what are some of the agreed upon descriptions of what fascism is? Or how do you personally define fascism?
0: Yeah, I wish I could tell you that there is an agreed upon definition of fascism. But, you know, fascism is historical phenomenon. It's not an a priori, you know, subject. So it's not like we can know what the definition of fascism is and then hold certain things up to the microscope and say, oh, this fits or this doesn't. It's rather more, we just kind of induce different things about history and collect what we think are the important characteristics of fascism. So not everybody agrees. And I mean, I think part of the intervention of the piece that I try to make is in 1933 in Germany um, and in 1920 in Italy, it wasn't actually clear to everybody else what fascism was. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I think, you know, there's something to be said for having a historical imagination and trying to understand things as they unfolded rather than judging them by hindsight. So with all of that said, I would say everybody agrees that fascism is a kind of right wing authoritarianism. Um But to describe or delineate the key characteristics, some people view imperialism and kind of territorial expansion as necessary to their definition of fascism, and some people don't. Um, Most people include some kind of religious or racial hierarchy um, that's expounded on by the proponents of fascism as part of their definition. Um, And I would say most people have some version of like the authoritarian impulse, meaning um, this kind of not just an undue deference to people with guns and badges, but the way in which a charismatic leader places himself um, at the center of all the solutions that he is, in fact, not the proposer of solutions, but the solution to problems himself. So usually fascism or definitions of fascism draw from kind of those various things. But how you wait um You know, certain characteristics versus others makes a big difference as to whether you see fascism unfolding around you today.
10: Well, and I feel like we've seen Donald Trump be pretty explicit about that, especially in the wake of Brussels, where like I think he was tweeting, I am the only one who can solve this problem. I am the solution to the problem of Brussels. And um, I think you know, in your piece, you kind of articulate a lot of different ways that Donald Trump is fascist. You talk about machismo. You talk about what you just mentioned, the racial and religious hierarchy. Um, I'm curious, since you've written the piece, which wasn't that long ago, if there's anything new uh, that strikes you in particular that has come out since.
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny about that, Alexis, is that, um, I filed that piece at Huffington Post, and it takes a while for them to post it. I would say like it went up, I don't know, 24 or 48 hours later. And in that intervening time, um, all of a sudden you had these Trump supporters marching onto cable television, kind of excusing or claiming riots as a justifiable means of political expression. And that's something I said specifically in the piece, and it was, um, you know, slightly terrifying to have it come, you know, to in full fruition, like 24 hours later, you know?
10: Yeah, well, I like the way that you put it, you were talking about that both Nazi rhetoric and the Trump campaign are suffused with the loaded language of humiliation and the promise to bring an end to it, not using brains, but with brawn. And I think we've seen that pretty explicitly <laughs> playing out with his supporters and him, his rhetoric it's coming yeah. directly from him. Yeah. Yeah. So one question we had for you, so you write in the piece that the war on terror and the war on drugs afford political legitimacy to authoritarian ways of thinking. So just to play devil's advocate, by that description, I think some may argue that there are already elements of fascism in place in the United States, even without Trump. So what is the difference between a nation with repressive policies and an optimistic leader and one with repressive policies and a hateful, outwardly fascist leader?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I think there are distinctions to be drawn. One of them is um, Karl Popper's distinction, which is, um, the thing that redeems democracy in his eyes versus all other systems is that it affords institutional frameworks to achieve change without violence. And it is actually possible for us to repeal elements or all of the war on terror. It is actually possible for us to appeal elements of or all of the war on drugs. In fact, I'm quite busy trying to do that on a day-to-day basis myself. So, I mean... We still do have an institutional framework for change. But what I think, you know, one of the reasons I decided to go ahead and write this piece is to raise some genuine sense of alarm about the ways in which establishment politics have been complicit in the rise of Donald Trump.
10: Well, just to push back on that a little bit, like I think back to an episode that we've had like like maybe I the question is more historically, right? If you think about the history of the United States, if you think about like what this country was founded on, I feel like, you know, when we do this sort of fascist comparison, you hear people talk about, oh, well, the United States is nothing like the Weimar Republic. But like this right, is right. also a country that was founded on like the wide scale genocide of like the native population, a country founded on slavery. Um, You know, we've had Mariame Kaba on the show, folks, may know her as person culture on Twitter. And she's talked about like, from the beginning of time, this country was founded upon like the forced labor of the black population that was imported from, you know, Africa here to be slaves. And like, there's so much about this country that is built on repression. And so like, do you think does the question, does the answer to your question change at all when you go back historically?
0: Yeah. I mean, without question, it does. Um, We've, we've had multiple, um, racialized regimes of state power, if I could put it that way. Um, and you know, the difference, there were all kinds of um, paranoid fantasies in 19th century America regarding slave insurrections and things like that. And there were also um, conspiratorial theories about slave owners amongst slaves. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of theories. The difference is when it comes to the racialized other state power and state repressive force gets attached to those theories, you know, those particular conspiracy theories. And I think you can even build on that. You can say the know nothing movement in the 18th, 40s and 50s in the United States um, is a proto-fascist movement, you know, fascist before there was such a thing. And in fact, one of the things I say in the piece is during mid-century, you know, 20th century United States history, we had expressions, native expressions of fascism here. I mean, people think that fascism is a European phenomenon, and they also tend to think of it as something that belongs in the past. Um, And I think we haven't, I mean, i I share the kind of urgency of your question in the sense that we have to recognize that within the United States, we've given rise to things that if they don't qualify, um, for the name, you know, under the specific definition of fascism, that's hardly any consolation. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. come awfully, awfully close. Right.
9: Yeah. Like for example, um, I saw just the other day a story about how in New York city, the NYPD has a practice of, um, zipping up, uh, mentally disturbed people who are having, you know, troubles in the street, basically into body bags that have, um, holes in them like air holes and then just sort of like leaving them on the side of the road for a while until they calm down. Um, and they were asked about this practice by a reporter and the spokesperson said, well, there are holes in the bag. I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. We do this all the time. Um, so from, you know, that kind of just, explicitly dehumanizing police practice, which is a, you know, it's not an aberration. It's a, it's actually NYPD policy. It sounds like um, all the way to, you know, our mass incarceration crisis, which as everybody knows, is the worst in human history. Um, It just seems, you know, it it seems like in the United States, we actually do live in a fascist country if you're, if you're black or if you're poor, right. Um, Especially if you're black and poor. And it's almost like fascism and apartheid at the same time, because, you know, of course, for, for white people, there are, and for people who have more money, there are ways to affect policy, um, to be involved in political movements that, um, kind of, you know, make some kind of marginal difference in the, in how the political system works. Um, but for so many people, (laughs) those, those, uh, avenues for political change are, are closed either through, you know, straight yeah. brutality. Like another example that I, I'm thinking of that's more recent, I guess, than, or, or I guess has been sort of a trajectory that I think started really in world war one with the crushing of um, domestic labor uprisings, you know, as you know, as a, as a historian, the U S military was actually um, used to to kill labor organizers um back during world war 1 and we've sort of seen like the unraveling of the labor movement ever since then. So I'm just, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's super important whether we decide that the US is right. a fascist country with or without Donald Trump. Um right. I just think it's interesting to think about uh really what um you know, why people are so afraid of him within the context of a possible Hillary Clinton presidency, someone who um really you know, at least is partially responsible for some of the uh, problems with mass incarceration that we have today, dating back from the 1990s. Um, And so I guess, um, you know, one of the most striking things that I've ever read historically is an anecdote in Hannah Arendt's Totalitarianism, in which she says that um, Mussolini in Italy was, was a fascist, absolutely, but that his regime was not actually very... Um, repressive that, you know, very few people actually were in, incarcerated under Mussolini. And the figures were just astonishing. I mean, figures that absolutely pale in comparison to the incarceration rate in the United States. So if you could just talk a little bit yeah. about, you know, how you see, um, yeah. especially mass incarceration, figuring into your calculus of like, you know, whether the U.S. falls where the US falls on the on the spectrum from you know fascist or t- totalitarian on on one end to democratic on the other.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, before I kind of take a stab at that larger question, let me just say that You know, we don't have to call something fascist in order to find it repugnant. Um, And I think it's worth at least having some sense of categorical distinction, if only to draw attention to the many things that already exist in our society that can actually give rise to fascism. You see what I'm saying? So the NYPD practice um, may not have a charismatic leader at its center, but that's no consolation. That's no justification for it. And there's a big argument um, between and among various historians about whether racism and anti-Semitism caused fascism and things like that. Whether or not, or was it economic crisis that caused it? Was it the Great Depression, so on and so forth? Whether or not, um, you know, however you side on, did something cause fascism, or did it was fascism merely crystallizing those things that already existed? Um, I think it's important to to recognize the impulses, the tendencies in society towards the policing of dissent, the dehumanization of various people, so on and so forth, so that you can understand, as people in the 1920s in Germany and Italy did not, that these things can actually give rise not just to fascism, but to totalitarian regimes themselves. Hannah Arendt did not find um, Mussolini's Italy to be totalitarian because she didn't find the kind of repressive repression that you cited um, regarding the policing of dissent and all these things. There are other scholars that have challenged that in the sense that Mussolini did try to give birth to this totalizing notion of the state, you know, where the state was involved in kind of every aspect of your life, even if that didn't come in the form of coercive power. Um, and, And of course, Mussolini is the You know, the person who gave rise to the famous, the infamous, I should say, black shirts in the sense that he may not have put people in prison, but he did unleash mob violence um, in order to control kind of the parameters of dissent. So I think, you know, all of that is a huge kind of preface to basically agreeing with you that if mass incarceration as a phenomenon doesn't in fact constitute fascism, it is something that can contribute to its rise. You see what I'm saying? That it's, it's Mm -hmm. logics, it's logics and it's justifications and the kinds of political equations that exist to support it are things that lend themselves to fascism.
9: When I was reading your piece, I actually, the, the image in my mind that, um, that I immediately thought of when I read the sentence that um, Alexis read a few minutes ago about affording political legitimacy to authoritarian ways of thinking is that the U S is so softened up, you know, so primed for a fascist leader like Trump um, in part because of uh, the racism in part because of uh, economic decline. Um, You know, there are a lot of the same sort of toxic uh, ingredients that, contributed to Hitler's rise, are at play here in the United States today, the xenophobia, you know, the um, blaming foreigners for economic problems. And I'm just, I'm wondering, as a historian, what a lot of people are talking about the media's response to Trump and the media having some sort of responsibility uh, for his rise, you know, that the amount of coverage that they have given to him has enabled his atmospheric, um, you know, rise in popularity and, and in the polls. And I'm curious, you know, do, I'm curious about whether you hold the media partially responsible for his rise and is it the type of coverage or is it the amount of coverage? And historically looking back, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what media coverage of Hitler and maybe even Mussolini, uh, was yeah. like during their ascent to power?
0: Yeah, first, let me say that, um, you know, if we were on video chat right now, you would have seen me just shaking my head to the whole first part of your comments. I mean, I think um, that was very well said. Um, Second, that the, yes, I do. I mean, Alexis is going to be a little bit bored here because I've kind of been her ear on this in the past, but um, I definitely <laughs> hold the She's written about this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hold the media accountable. Um, and I do so in part because um, I've gone back to the voices who were critiquing and trying to understand fascism from the period of 1920 um, to the early 1930s. And in particular, I've drawn great inspiration from Thomas Mann's Mario and the Magician. And that's an allegorical story about the rise of European fascism that makes it clear that there's a theatrical element to demagoguery, right? Fascism is among other things, a performance and, you know, culpability for it extends to those who give, uh, the fascist a platform, the magician in the case of Thomas Mann's story. So I definitely think, um, the media, you know, actually, I think we we all should be having a self-searching conversation about the way in which the profit motive has um cheapened, you know, our news coverage. We have lived for a long time now in a world in which corporate media, you know, was not biased towards the conservative or the liberal as much as it was biased towards the superficial. And Thomas uh, Donald Trump has just come in and, and made a spectacular, um, you know, this amazing performance out of that, you know, he, he, Comes in, he violates rules for equal time because he calls in and it's actually an interview and he dominates the stage. And CNN, MSNBC, I mean, the list goes on and on. They give him the stage, they give him that platform. And I think it's time, um, you know, regardless of what happens with Donald Trump in this election, I think it's really time to have a kind of searching conversation about the profit motive and what Jay Rosen calls like the view from nowhere, which is media pretending to have no particular um, you know subjective point of view and therefore not giving their audience any sense of context or critique when Donald Trump just spouts lies you know they're just giving a platform to those
10: lies
6: During the break, we had two calls, we had uh, brahm and Diana, and they were both saying that they would vote for Trump over Clinton and even though they' they both consider themselves uh, liberal Democrats. And I just you know, I want to remind you all of something, even though Donald Trump is saying he's not going to touch Social Security, even though Donald Trump is saying he's not going to touch Medicare, even though Donald Trump is saying that he's going to change our trade deals so our factories come back home. You know, these all sound like good things, even though the the two subtexts of Donald Trump's anti uh, anti Mexican rhetoric, uh, one of them is a clearly racist subtext, a shout out to the Republican base, but the other is they're taking your jobs. I get all that. Even if you think those things are like you know reasonable, acceptable, a little more progressive, or a little more just all American, or whatever. Donald Trump is running as a Republican. And so if you vote for him because you think he's charming or he's an outsider or he's not beholden to anybody because he's his very own billionaire or whatever the, may, the reason may be, if Donald Trump is our president, then you have a Republican in the White House. That means that Republican appointees are going to be put in charge of the Federal Communications Commission. Where they can do away with net neutrality and hand the net over to Comcast and Time Warner and a couple of other companies and let them slice and dice it and start charging you, you know, six times what you're charged right now. It means that at the Securities Exchange Commission you're going to have a Republican commissioner who can make it more, you know, easier and easier and easier for giant corporations to basically rob, rape and pillage America. And you're going to have at the Department of Labor a Republican appointee who's going to make it harder. Uh, Maybe even impossible for unions to continue to survive in the United States. If you have a Republican president named Donald Trump, you're going to have a Trump appointee at the head of the uh, Food and Drug Administration. The FDA has been progressively defunded under Republican budget after Republican budget after Republican budget to the point where they're having a hard time keeping track of, you know, where some of our, you know, this listeria outbreak that we had. We talked about this yesterday. You're going to have a Republican appointee at the head of the USDA. The last time that happened, the USDA changed their rules for voluntary inspection of food now, of meat and fish now by by the manufacturers, rather than, you know, uh, surprise inspections. Not good stuff. You're going to have a Republican as the head of—you're going to have a Republican appointee as the head of the Fed, uh, you're going to have a Republican appointee at, 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 as the head of Amtrak. You're going to have a Republican appointee at the head of the post office. You want to see the post office get privatized? Just let Donald Trump become president. He puts a Republican in as the head of the, of, the, of the post office. Boom, post office is gone and all those good union jobs with it. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It, please do not forget these things. No matter how seductive the siren song of Donald Trump may be, or no matter how much you may dislike the Clintons, you know, having a Republican in the White House has huge consequences beyond the person himself.
4: Donald Trump has released a list of possible Supreme Court picks to replace the late Antonin Scalia, who of course is no closer to being replaced today than he was the day President Obama named Merrick Garland uh, uh, as his uh, proposed replacement for Antonin Scalia. The list from Trump is an utter abortive disaster. There are 11 people on that list. Uh, let's take a look at that list. I don't know if you'll recognize any of these names, Stephen Collaton, Allison aid, Raymond Grender, Thomas Hardiman, Raymond Kethledge, Joan Larson, Thomas Lee, William Pryor, David Strauss, Diane Sykes and Don Willett. Five of the 11 are state Supreme Court justices who would not have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. They often fly sort of under the radar. Uh, All of the federal judges were appointed by President George W. Bush. We are talking about some real, true, what term am I looking for? Honest to God extremists here. Raymond Grender, for example, incredibly anti-abortion, once argued that a law which required abortion providers to inform patients that abortion will terminate the life of a whole separate, unique, living human being He said mandatory disclosure of that type doesn't unduly burden women seeking abortions. Insane. Stephen Colleton has written uh, or supported several rulings which allowed religious institutions to avoid providing contraception coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Diane Sykes, in a majority opinion that she wrote that was similar to the Supreme Court backing Hobby Lobby's right to not cover contraception for employees through health insurance based on religious beliefs referred to some forms of contraception as quote abortion drugs. This is a judge, no connection to reality. And then we get to what I call Lewis the cherry on top or the grand finale. William Pryor, who seems to be the most extreme, he referred to Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision, which recognized the right to abortion nationwide. He called it, quote, the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law. Uh, he also wrote a legal brief urging the Supreme Court to uphold a ban on what was described as, quote, homosexual sodomy and in a 2003 legal brief argued to uphold Texas law criminalizing consensual LGBT sex, equating it to polygamy, incest, pedophilia, prostitution, and adultery, and argued states should be able to prosecute gay people as criminals. He also said homosexuality was harmful and that Texans need to be protected from homosexuality. Uh, this is these, these are extremists, Lewis. This is a crazy, crazy list. The anti-abortion stuff isn't even in line with majority American opinion anymore. Neither is the anti-gay stuff. These are deviants of the highest order.
2: Well, when you're Donald Trump and you've enlisted the help of the Heritage Foundation to <laughs> pick your your uh, Supreme Court justice, what do you expect? This is the list that we come up with, and I, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm pretty sure that Donald Trump, personally, if he knew about all this stuff, would probably not approve of these justices.
4: Oh, I think he knows about it, and I think this is calculated. I think that although Trump is running as the non-establishment guy, all the federal judges here are, are Bush appointees. These are all sort of social conservative justices, very within the box. And remember, Trump has been appealing to evangelical voters, even though there's nothing evangelical about him. I think this is very calculated. Well, maybe. I'm just not
2: convinced that uh, your your average Trump voter Mm. uh, is even aware
4: that this, all of this is happening and that this is something they're paying attention to. Maybe not. Yeah. And if you thought the entire Trump and Hillary would be uh, 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 the same in most areas, it doesn't matter if it's not Bernie, I'm voting for Trump or Hillary. Look at this list and you will see very quickly that at least on the issue of Supreme Court nominations, they would be worlds apart.
11: Roger Stone's a super bad guy. He's one of these uh, operatives who works the dark side, as Dick Cheney would say. Uh, it, we were actually just talking about this, coincidentally, yesterday in the post game for the members. That's uh, tytnetwork.com slash join to become a member and to hear all those. He's the guy who made up the story about Elliot Spitzer leaving on his black socks uh, while he was, uh, you know, carrying on with prostitutes. Now, what do you need that for? You, you already had the guy. He already admitted it. Well, he he said he admitted later that um, yeah, you make up a detail like this one because it makes it more believable, and two, it helps people visualize it. That's the kind of dirty, dirty player Roger Stone is. So who's he helping now? You even have to ask. Of course, Donald Trump. So he's so toxic; he's been banned by some of cable news outlets, cable news outlets that'll have every. Insane Trump supporter going on there and saying all sorts of crazy things. This guy is so uh, toxic that they even some of them were like, "No, no, no, we can't have this guy on." Right, but he's still busy uh, working for Trump behind the scenes and uh, pretty much threatening violence. So he's talking about the convention and if the delegates don't vote for Donald Trump, apparently there's going to be consequences. So what? He, here's what he explains. He said he would give out the hotel room numbers of delegates who weren't voting for Trump at the Republican National Convention. Dude, that is crazy. You're going to have Trump brown shirts start knocking on their hotel room doors? Doing what? Well, he's going to explain in a second. Now, while talking to CBS4's Jim DeFade, I believe this was in Miami, he doubled down saying that voters have a right to knock on the doors of their delegates. Okay. Now, look, sometimes people go to other people's house to actually talk to them, persuade them, etc. So it's not unheard of. Doing it to delegates who are not voting the way that you want seems a little different. Going to their hotel rooms seems a little bit much, to say the least. Okay, hold. Wait to hear this last quote. See, He says, when did I say violence? I didn't say go to their rooms and kick the shit out of them. If that should happen... That would be beyond my control. Wow. This is where we are now in America. This is what fascism looks like. And it's here. And it's knocking on our door. So understand what Donald Trump and his supporters are actually about. I'm
7: going to tell fascists.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on this show's website. And if you want to dive deeper into today's topic, I suggest It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. As usual, personally, I checked my local library first, but couldn't find the book there, actually, and then did find it on Audible, so I downloaded it and listened to it recently. Here are the highlights. A fascist dictator propels himself to power in the U.S. by campaigning on a combination of economic populism and overt racism. Once fully in power, it turns out that the men he's surrounded himself with are actually more despicable than he is— Keep him in the dark on policy issues and then eventually overthrow him to assume power themselves. Think of you know, Dick Cheney using Bush as a puppet combined with the Trump surrogates we've heard promoting genuinely violent tactics to get their way. If you'd like to check it out for yourself, I highly recommend it, and it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com/slash best.
11: Are you fascist about the news?
12: Oh, looky here. Look who's all of a sudden respectable. Trump, interviewed by the Wall Street Journal on financial policy on Monday and the day before, too, with ABC's George Stephanopoulos.
1: If you try to buy debt back at a discount, interest rates are going to go up. No, you can buy, buy you debt to borrow back to and pay for it. It. you buy debt
12: back and you take advantage of certain things. You can. The same morning Donald Trump was on NBC's Meet the Press, where Chuck Todd, to his credit, I suppose, caught him in a flip-flop over his incoherent tax proposals. Should we assume that most
7: of your plans then, we shouldn't take you at your word as sort of that they're floors, what you just described, that, you know what, it's my opening statement, but everything is negotiable. Excuse me, it's,
12: excuse me, it's called life, Chuck. It's not my word, of course. I put in a proposal. You know what they are? They're really proposals. People can say it's a tax plan. It's really a tax proposal. Hold it. Tax policy? Why give that any scrutiny whatsoever no matter how flip-floppy or incoherent there are far bigger fish to fry they're bringing drugs they're bringing crime they're rapists and some i assume are good people
5: you know he may be talking but he'll talk a lot faster with the torture
12: donald j trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever.
11: How do you know those bruises weren't there before? I'm not a lawyer.
12: Trump has achieved the brink of the Republican nomination, according to the candidate himself, by being himself, no matter how politically incorrect except that his supposed courageous candor is contaminated with the most cowardly hate speech, racism, xenophobia, misogyny, incitement, breathtaking ignorance on issues both foreign and domestic, and a nuclear recklessness reminiscent of a raving meth head with a machete on an episode of Cops. Bad boys,
5: bad boys. gonna do? gonna do when they-
12: The man is a menace of historic proportions. So who the Chuck Todd cares about his tax proposals? It's like asking Charles Manson about his driving record. But here comes the political press going into standard general election mode and treating a demagogue as a legitimate standard bearer, as if the only thing he has to answer for is the latest blip in the news cycle who will donald trump pick as his vice presidential running mate
4: all right just moments ago donald trump arrived in washington we saw his plane at reagan national airport at this very moment he is in an suvs on his way
12: let's just say that we institutionally were obliged till now to report and thus give oxygen to trump's incendiary ravings because hate speech is news it's our role to expose it even if the exposure serves him it is not our role however to be co-conspirators in his revisionist imagery
4: the Republican race for president with a, a brand new look this morning a presidential Donald Trump fresh off a major
3: foreign policy speech
2: today Uh, He decided to act presidential and gave a foreign policy speech. Read it from a teleprompter. That's not like Donald Trump. He was tempered in his approach.
12: But if you listen to Trump last night at his quote-unquote victory speech, we saw the different Trump. We saw the calm Trump, the more presidential Trump. For crying out loud, of course he wants to be elevated. What's sickening is who's operating the elevator. With every oh-so-decorous question about tax policy or the national debt, The media are not simply abetting him, but normalizing him. In effect, accepting his grotesque pass to the nomination. Look, by its nature, journalism subordinates old news to the latest development. But in this case, being slave to the fresh angle is simple malpractice. Because every moment spent on Trump policy and process buries the lead. The lead is is that a man who wants to build a wall, who wants to ban Muslims, who sees women only as potential vessels for his no problem there, I assure you, could be the president of the United States. It was the lead in July. It is the lead now. It will be the lead in November. Every interview with Donald Trump, every single one, should hold him accountable for bigotry, incitement, juvenile conduct, and blithe contempt for the Constitution. The voters will do what the voters will do, but it must not be, cannot be, because the press did not do enough.
6: Elizabeth Warren tweeted out uh, 14 hours ago last night. Donald Trump is now the leader of the Republican Party. It's real. He is one step away from the White House. And here's what else is real. This is actually, this wasn't a tweet. This was on her Facebook page. Trump has built his case on racism, sexism, and xenophobia. There's more enthusiasm for him among leaders of the KKK than leaders of the political party he now controls. He incites his supporters to violence. He praises Putin and, according to a columnist who recently interviewed him, is, quote, cool with being called an authoritarian and doesn't mind associations with history's worst dictators. He attacks veterans like John McCain, who were captured, and puts our service members at risk by cheerleading illegal torture. In a world with ISIS militants and leaders like North Korea strongman Kim Jong-un conducting nuclear tests... Donald Trump surrounds himself with a forward policy team that has been called a collection of charlatans and puts out contradictory and nonsensical national security ideas one expert recently called incoherent and truly bizarre. What happens next will test the character of all of us, Republican, Democrat, and Independent. It will determine whether we move forward as one nation or splinter at the hands of one man's narcissism and divisiveness. I know which side I'm on, and I'm going to fight my heart out to make sure Donald Trump's toxic skew of hatred and insecurity never reaches the White House.
1: We just heard clips featuring Douglas Adams from his book The Restaurant at the End of the Universe on the fundamental problem of electing any one president, Counterspin on the media ignoring the signs of creeping fascism, David Packman told us that authoritarianism is the one unifying trait of Trump supporters, Democracy Now! discussed Trump's top foreign policy advisor, aside from himself and his very good brain, Counterspin talked with Heidi Byrick about the through-line of white supremacy in the Trump campaign, Humorless queers talked with historian Kathleen Friedel about making the historical comparison to fascism. Tom Hartman laid out the additional effects of a Trump presidency. David Packman reported on Trump's list of disastrous Supreme Court picks. The Young Turks highlighted one Trump campaign hitman threatening violence against any delegates thinking of not supporting Trump. On the media excoriated the mainstream media for helping normalize Trump. And finally, Tom Hartman read Elizabeth Warren's response to Trump becoming the leader of the Republican Party. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
13: Hey Jay, it's Eamon from La Haber, California. Uh, I'm just calling in, in reference to like your last dialogue you had with as your audience on the last episode of the podcast um, about like uh, materialism and stuff. And I just wanted to share a little story I had. Um, I just got my tax refund like maybe a week, two weeks ago. And I've been wanting to buy a new bass guitar with it, um, a Rickenbacker. I just I've always wanted one of those, and it's never I've never really had the time or the money to get one. But this year I finally did, and I was looking on eBay, find all the the you know the nicest and used ones I could get. And um, long story short, I found a couple I wanted, but um, they were really expensive, like sixteen hundred dollars or more. And I had about a thousand dollars to spend. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at him. I'm like trying to do the math in my head. Like, oh, I can put this much in my credit card. Blah blah. I already have a bass guitar. You know, I it, just, it was broken. The fix was about a ten dollar fix, and then some new strings. It's about sixteen dollars. So about a thirty dollar investment, I would have had. You know, it would have been fine. But I was just rationalizing. Oh, you know, I work hard. I can, I can do this. I can do that. And me and my wife were talking, and she was brought up the really good point. It's like, do you really need that? Like, you can fix what you have. You just want it. And she was right. I was jumping through all these hoops to get something that, yeah, I mean, it would sound better, I guess, in the sense of like it's a nicer instrument, but it wouldn't make my skill, which is like, you know, decent. It wouldn't make it better. So I took her advice and I I realized, okay, it would just be way worth it just to save the money and not put myself more in debt and just fix the instrument I have. And then, you know, get better at that. And if I get to a point where I feel I've gotten a lot better, then I can try to save the money. Or I, I could try to, like, find uh, ways to get the instrument I want, just not right now. Yeah, so there's a, there you go. There's a good example of me pretty much just being kind of not, I wouldn't say brainwashed, but kind of, like, fed this idea and then running with it that, oh, I need something new. And then realizing, a that I wouldn't be very smart financially, and B, why do I need it? I could just fix what I have. So, I don't know, I hope that helps anyone listening. But uh, it made me really kind of cringe at how I got suckered into the idea that I should just, just buy something new and not fix it, even though it would be a total waste of time, effort, and resources. So, yeah, all right, thanks for everything you do, Jay. Bye.
5: Hey, Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. I just wanted to respond to your comments um, regarding the hedonic treadmill. Um, and consumerism in general. I think what really kind of got me into thinking about spending less and consuming less was obviously your podcast. Because, um, you know, week in and week out, I listen to it. And I used to kind of smirk when you do the bit about uh, being an anti-consumerism consumerism advocate. And I don't really know why. But, you know, after listening to the podcast for the last couple of years now, and then, you know, sort of noticing things in the media and especially at times when I didn't have any money, I had little money to spend, I started thinking about, you know, what do I really need? And um, I think the one thing that really got me thinking about spending less was the image of these landfills. There's a landfill here in Atlanta, which is on a big hill. You can just, you know, it's a hill of garbage. And I just think of, you know, the fact that, for instance, I lost my iPods back in December uh, I normally would have maybe saved up a couple of weeks to get a new one, but I just thought, well, I have a phone. I can put music on there and podcast on there, and rather than you know buying another iPod and putting the one I have here in the dump. I'm just going to use what I have, and uh, it's kind of gone on from there. And I've just sort of you know decided, decided I want, I want to buy a new pair of shoes, or something. I'm like, well, do I really need them? Are they going to really you know benefit me? And again, I going to have that image of that landfill, and you know all the things that we throw away on a daily basis. And I think uh, the thing that really got me thinking about this was when I had to upgrade my phone, and I thought to myself, you know, quite often with your computer, if you have a new, if you have to do a software update, you don't have to go out and buy a new computer. You just update the software. And I thought, why why can't they just do that with phones? Like, why do you have to buy a brand new Android phone every year, whatever it is? Why can't they just update the software? And, you know, it got me kind of feeling like that's something that uh, needs to be done. And in lieu of that, I'm going to do everything I can to consume as little as possible in order to stop that landfill from you know accumulating more and more junk uh, from the human species. Anyway, thanks very much. Sorry, I kind of rumbled a bit. But um, I'll talk to you see? Thanks, bye.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, you may recall I was asking you to nominate this show for a podcast award a little while ago. Well, you came through, we have been nominated, and so now the voting starts. And the way the voting works in the podcast awards is you can vote every day from the opening, which is Sunday the 29th, all the way through the end of the voting period. And the reason they do this is to have a way to reward shows that have smaller audiences that are highly engaged. So that a a show that happens to have a large audience... Can't just sweep through without any effort. So, regardless of the size of the audience, it's really the engagement of the audience that matters. So, what I always ask—we've done this in the past—is set an alarm for yourself. Just set a little reminder. Uh, you know, your normal like first thing you do when you sit down at the computer, and you know, or maybe when you take your lunch break, have a little thing ping, and just for like thirty seconds before you check Facebook, go to podcastawards.com. And register your vote for Best of Left in the news and politics category at podcastawards.com. And the voting period, I, I funny, I looked up the starting date and didn't look up the ending date. It's usually about two weeks. So you just set a little uh, alert for yourself to remember to do that each day. And, you know, then we see if we win. But I'm grateful for your effort, regardless of the outcome. And secondly, today, the podcast awards themselves, they are in their 11th year. So they've been just a stalwart member of the podcasting community for all this time. And they're running a fundraiser this year because their website looks exactly the same today as it did 10 years ago. So you can just imagine how out of date it is, whether you go look at it yourself or not. And so they're doing a fundraiser because they want to revamp everything you know refresh the whole site uh, which is you know long overdue but expensive so if you sort of appreciate beyond the podcast you listen to the existence of the podcasting community i think the podcast awards are a pretty decent way to give back to the community as a whole so if you want to go in and drop in five or ten bucks while you cast your votes That would also be greatly appreciated. I know that they will appreciate it. Now, finally today, more thoughts on voting. Uh, I had a listener send an interesting article to me about the difficulty of third-party voting, why it's hard to get people to vote third-party, and he he sent an article that breaks it down in terms of game theory. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with game theory, and one of the most famous Game Theory Problems is called the Prisoner's Dilemma. And the way to break this down really easily is imagine you and a buddy get caught in the middle of committing a crime. So you're caught, but they they don't have you red-handed, but they're really quite sure you did it. And so they you know, take you into the police station, and they split you up into two separate interrogation rooms, and they offer both of you the same deal. They say... If you rat out your friend, you'll get an incredibly light sentence and they will get a much harsher sentence. But if he rats you out, of course the opposite is true. So you don't want to have that long sentence, so you'd better comply and, you know, go ahead and rat out your friend. And if you rat each other out, well then maybe you get like a bad sentence but not as bad. And the only good outcome is if no one rats anyone out then potentially you get away with it completely in the article it said uh, you know you're caught committing a crime but if no one rats anyone out well then you just get charged with trespassing because you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be and so you get like you know a couple of months in jail instead of five or ten years were the other options and so this is a a perfect scenario where two people should be trying to work together to get the best possible outcome for both of them. But the way game theory plays out in this situation, the vast majority of the time, people end up acting in a way that produces worse outcomes for themselves and others. And so the idea is that in voting for third parties, you know, if you're a progressive person you want to elect a progressive person because you want progressive policies to be be implemented. That would be your best-case scenario. But you recognize that the system is broken, and if we're ever going to have real progressives in office, we need to fundamentally change the system, break free from corporate money, and so forth. And one of the ways to do that would be to have a third party be elected who's not dependent on corporate interests and so forth. And you could even say that Huge majorities of people in the sort of progressive minded realm, people who would generally vote for Democrats, but maybe they're more liberal than the Democrats are, or, you know, maybe, maybe they're perfectly in line with the Democrats, but they recognize we need to get, uh, you know, away from money and politics and the Democrats are, are sucked in by Wall Street just like the Republicans are. So you could say a huge majority of people want to vote for a third party. But just like the prisoner's dilemma, they have to struggle with trusting whether or not everyone else is going to do the same thing, because you only get the best outcome if everyone cooperates and works together. So if you vote for a third party and no one else does, well then, not only did nothing good happen, but you're slightly increasing the risk of something really terrible happening, like a fascist trump presidency for instance but if everyone joined together and everyone cooperated well then we could vote third party and that would be fine so the way i put this into the context of all the conversations about third party voting and strategizing that we've been having is one of two things first of all We don't need to strengthen the Green Party or any other third party in order to get people to vote for them. The strength of those parties is not the problem. The problem is that people don't trust, very rightfully so, they don't trust that everyone else is going to vote the way they're going to vote. The only way voting third party really makes a difference is if everyone does it together and there's no system by which that can happen. So, in this article, it, it talks about how if you are committing a crime, one way to uh, help defend against the pitfalls of the prisoner's dilemma is to have a pact ahead of time before you do anything while you're still in communication with your friend, make a pact that you are gonna you know not rat them out and they're not going to rat you out. And therefore, you're both going to get away with it to the greatest extent. And so with third party voting, like I said, we don't need a stronger third party. We need a stronger system in place by which we can all sort of promise to each other we're going to vote for a third party. Now, the logistics of making that happen and the, the fact that you're you're still dealing with a lot of the pitfalls of the prisoner's dilemma, where you're just dealing with trust with a bunch of people you don't know, is a huge pitfall. And frankly, I don't see a way to make that work. Maybe someone's much smarter than me can figure it out. I would love to hear it. What is a much, much better way to help something like that along is uh, any variety of voting uh, uh, updates to the way our voting process works, the one that comes to mind most particularly regarding third party voting is called instant runoff voting, where you get to vote for multiple candidates for the same office and rank them. So you could say my first choice is the Green Party, but if they don't reach 50%, then I don't want my vote to just not be counted, I want my vote to be transferred from the Green Party to, let's say, the Democratic Party as my second choice, as a backstop. Because if there was a system like that in place, I I would vote that way every single time, no question about it, and I would encourage everyone to vote that way every single time, no question about it. That's how you'd really create a system by which you you uh, get rid of the barriers get get rid of those prisoner's dilemma pitfalls of third party voting and then you could really get some serious numbers voting for a third party it, it would be a fundamental change in the way our elections work which of course is why the two parties in power fight desperately to not let that happen so if you want that to happen you have to take over the parties that are in power from the ground up. You have to get in on the ground level, at the community level, on the state level, and fight for changes like that. It is not impossible at those lower levels. And if we can have a movement like that, if you if you want third parties to be viable in this country, we have to change the system by which we vote, not just talk about these theoretically uh, symbolic votes for third parties that send messages to someone with no evidence that anyone is listening or cares at all about your message, to me, all of that is completely ethereal and, and I see no way by which that makes concrete change when we have these gigantic fundamental barriers in the form of th- this psychological pitfall of the prisoner's dilemma. And and they're not wrong. When, when people talk about this, they send me messages all the time and they use words like fear. We fear a Republican being elected or we fear that the other people won't vote third party. So, well, if no one else is going to do it, then I won't either because we all have to do it together or it's a wasted vote. And I fear that Other people won't vote that way. It's not, it's not a fear. It's a cool, calm and collected recognition of a fundamental and obvious truth. There are systemic barriers in the way of third party voting being viable. Therefore, it is absolutely reasonable. For people to not vote for a third party for all of these reasons I've just described, that's not an irrational fear to have. It's not an emotion that needs to be overcome. It just is. It is the system that we're in. So my suggestion is if you want to change who we vote for, you absolutely have to change how we vote. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there, and for details on the show itself